here. Hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Simon Taylor and I'm joined by the amazing Kai Sheffield, head of crypto over at Visa. How are you doing, Kai? I am fantastic. It is June. We're halfway through the year. I can't believe it. You know, things are moving quickly, but excited for the show. Yeah, things really are moving quickly. And in this show, we're going to talk into real world use cases. Turns out there are some. Web3, blockchain, crypto, there's all kinds of stuff out there. And we're going to dive into all of that today. So we want to take a proper look at those use cases and what the future holds. And to dig into it, of course, we're joined by Maurizio Magaldi, who's global leader of crypto here at 11FS. How are you doing, Maurizio? I'm great. I'm a sucker for use cases. So let's dive into this. I'm a sucker for use cases too. And hey, listeners, uh, just a very brief, small announcement. We're going to be changing seats soon. So Maurizio, in season two of Blockchain Insider, since Kai came along, is going to be your regular host from here on out. You might see me popping up occasionally, uh, but we're changing chairs. Don't worry, you're still going to get Kai's genius and regular hosting duties. Uh, but I need to take care of some other things. So this is going to be super exciting. I get to be a listener more often, and I get to come and be a nerd with you guys occasionally. So really, Really, really looking forward to that. Well done, Mauricio. I'm glad to have you uh, doing this stuff. I'm excited. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Enough of that crap. Let's get on with the use cases and the stuff that people care about. Uh, let's start with what the heck is a real world use case? Um, like, Kai, what do you think about when you hear real world use case? Why do people say this stuff? Yeah, I, I think you know, this idea of you know, public blockchains and tokens as a way to coordinate you know, activity you know, has been around for a long time. And, and I think the question is, is that activity purely just happening you know, online in digital environments, or how does that activity actually come in and impact other industries you know, in the real world? Uh, and so I think taking some of the core concepts around can you incentivize a group of people to take some action or operate some software you know, Bitcoin really pioneered that with you know, miners and being able to incentivize the development of this decentralized network. But the use case was creating this magic internet money, you know, this digital version of gold, which is really, you could argue, just useful in a digital environment. Uh, and so I think that there are some fascinating use cases and experiments around, can you take those same mechanisms and use it to coordinate and incentivize people to create or build or operate things that have some real world manifestation? So it's not just all speculation and hype. There might be something beyond just price games here, Maurizio. Is, is that kind of what you think of when you think of real world? I think there's that aspect of this is not just charts with prices and people yelling on the internet. I think there's a lot of bridging real life experiences and real life problems or even other newish use cases that might not be as fancy as the price of the Bitcoin or the price of any other cryptocurrency, but they are entertaining in their own way and even solving real world challenges or nuisances that um, in the day to day we are maybe not looking at. And then with Crypto Web 3, we have possibilities that didn't seem plausible with other technology, and now they are. And the fact that some of these use cases are not necessarily seen as speculative is actually a good thing. So yeah, uh, it's a real world thing. A real world thing. All right, let's talk about a real world thing, kind of. Kai, you've used this app called Stepen, S-T-E-P-N. Can you give it a like brief pitch? 
Oh my, I, I will I will do my best. So I have I have played around with with Stepin. Uh I think that the concept here is this idea of you know move to earn or walk to earn, uh, which kind of plays off you know some of the early experiments with play to earn gaming uh, with games like Axie Infinity. And I think that the easiest way to describe it is you know think about you know Strava or Fitbit. And you know, being able to use you know, GPS to track your actual you know, movements or, or your steps, you know, combined with a game where you can actually purchase a virtual pair of sneakers that once you own and combined with your activity and movement in the real world as measured by GPS on your phone, you can then earn a token as an incentive for going out you know, and walking. And so, you know, I've been taking my dog for walks down the street. And before I leave for the walk, I turn on Steppin and it tracks my steps and I'm earning a token, you know, as I walk. Now, you know, some pe- the, the question is, okay, where does the value actually come from? You know, how is, is this just free money you know, paying people to walk? It's really kind of a game that I think is similar to, you know, there were some early experiments of, you know, if you buy a gym membership, you work out more because you spent some money on the gym membership. So you feel bad if you're not working out, you're wasting money. In order to be able to use Stepin, you have to buy an NFT. You buy these virtual pairs of shoes. And then if you're not actually walking and you're not moving around, you've wasted the money on those virtual shoes. And so it's this kind of this incentive where you have to buy something up front, which is not cheap. I think the cheapest pair of shoes are you know hundreds of dollars. But once you've invested in saying, I'm going to buy this virtual pair of sneakers and try this out, then the more that you actually move with the app, you know, the tokens, you get tokens you know, based on that movement that can then effectively pay back, you know, what you initially paid. So I think the important element here is, you know, a lot of these new applications and use cases, this isn't something that a lot of people are doing just purely to make money and to speculate and they're out buying tokens thinking that the price is going to go up. This is a token that is changing your behavior when combined with some fun gameplay around I get to choose which sneakers I have. I have to repair them you know, as they get you know, worn down after I walk too much. And so it's interesting game mechanics that are incentivizing actually positive behavior of being physically active, you know, walking with these shoes on. But I know, Simon, you got a code too. And so you've been walking around in the Stepin app. Like, tell, tell me your experience. I have been walking around in the Stepin app. And, and where I got to with it was like, what if the Apple Watch uh, fitness app, Nike and your health insurance company all had a baby? So like there's, with a video game. And so, like, that's a weird, like, German geneticist experiment lab thing of how you would create that baby. But essentially, the game mechanic is the key here. It's actually kind of fun because you got to repair your shoe and you got to get gems. And if you think that sounds silly, then look at the amount of people in the subway or commuting that are playing, like, uh, mobile games on their phone. Like, games are rewarding. People do it for the intrinsic reward of the game. Health insurance is already talking about paying people to stay healthy. So this sounds kind of crazy. It sounds like Ponzi-nomics. So wait, you, you buy an NFT and then you get given this coin that they've made up out of thin air that only has value because people are using it. What happens if all the users are going to go away? But the game is what's bringing people. The enjoyment is what's bringing people and the design. And often with these things, like everything in real world use cases, 
people can't be told what the future is. They have to see it for themselves. So go get yourself a good code, go play with this stuff. And then it just makes more sense. Maurizio, uh, what are your thoughts? I think this opens up a big avenue. And I, I love that you touched the point on uh, health insurance, because think about this in public health, right? Um, there is a, a, a an obesity pan- pandemic in developed countries. And if we can create the proper incentives, the amount of money that public health is going to spend is much less by incentivizing people to become active. So the benefits on, I know this sounds like a fringe use case because it's just too big, but it's an avenue to be pursued in thinking about public health in and on itself, because, you know, that's a lot of money that goes into public health these days and we're not getting any healthier if we can embed incentives into the way we do things like the things we're doing with Steppen, that becomes a much more achievable goal. Could you just cover off Dune Analytics? Because um, they just raised 70 million in February with a billion valuation. What is Dune Analytics? And could you link that back to Stefan? <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. So Dune is one of the hallmarks of using public data for analysis. So they are on various blockchains. And what they do is that they created a way for you to actually consume the data that's sitting on the blockchain and do analysis based on the data model that is available on the blockchains and also add a few other data sources for you to provide insights and make uh, sound decisions about the tokens that are there. And it's not just the cryptocurrencies or the uh, native tokens or the NFTs. You can see all the data, the transactional data history and analyze the trends. You can see the wallets. And you can actually consume that for a couple of different objectives. Like one is obviously your trading. So if you go to dune.com, if you're listening to this on your mobile phone and you search for Steppen, you can see how many shoes were bought today, how many active users were there were in the last seven days, uh, what activities people have been doing. And different people have built different dashboards. And the user community creates a dashboard and anybody can consume that for free. Imagine if I could have that level of data about how the Apple Watch is performing or how a video game is performing. You can't get that data, but in this world, you can. So you've got this open, transparent ledger where anybody can create information about a game that anybody can participate in. So it, it's this interconnectivity thing that's that's super, super interesting. I think a few other takeaways from, from Stepin that are, are valuable for the audience. One, you could argue this is kind of the first crypto-native app that has daily active users and a lot of them. And so, you know, seeing something that like people are actually opening every single day, putting in their routine as they go on a walk. And many people who weren't even in crypto, I think they've mentioned that you know, about you know, 20 to 30 percent of their customers have you know, never interacted. They projected never interacted with crypto before. And so, you know, I would expect this is going to be the first of many where you have new products that are built on these new platforms that can provide incentives or other gaming mechanics that have some real world value and that also use real world data. And so if you think about airdrops and yield farming and like, how do you actually distribute tokens to incentivize the behavior that you want? Most of that has happened just based upon, you know, how many times you used Uniswap or Compound or or some of these online platforms, but being able to distribute tokens based upon how much someone has moved is a really fascinating concept. And so if you think about all of the different forms of data 
you know, of computers, of, of machines, of, of humans, and how they interact with society, and now the ability to reward or incentivize a certain type of behavior, either going forward, ongoing, or re- retroactively in an airdrop. You know, imagine if Fitbit said, the most active people on Fitbit are going to wake up tomorrow and they're going to get an NFT or they're going to get a token that provides them some access that also allows them to say, hey, I'm one of the most active people on Fitbit and not just that's identifiable in the Fitbit servers, but that's identifiable to anyone who wants to build a query on Dune Analytics, you know, any other brand that's looking for active customers to market to. And so that ability to claim and have a consumer opt in to say, I'm willing to share my data in exchange for some incentive, I think is something that's very powerful. The loyalty and reward side of it is huge. I mean, this makes loyalty and rewards just look tiny. I can incentivize and reward anyone that's ever been my customer so long as they use one of these one of these platforms. Uh, and very briefly, I want to take a look at Helium, Maurizio. Um, Helium's one of my personal favorites just because it's the one that people tend to get. Um, so imagine if there was a decent, imagine if we didn't need telcos. I'm assuming you guys know the scooter company Lime. I'm assuming you've heard of Salesforce. They're a pretty big organization. They are customers of the Helium network, which is a telco that doesn't have any fixed infrastructure. Because AT&T and Vodafone and all of these companies, they install towers. And that's where the cell phone reception comes from, and they install fixed wires. And that creates a lot of cost, upfront cost, capital cost. And then they make that back by charging users for their platform. Helium network says, we don't have any central um, sort of towers. We're not going to put any capex out. What we're going to do is we're going to get people to install their own equipment around the the market, and we're just going to use that. And you wonder uh, how does that work? Well, you or I can go buy a little device that we stick on our window or in the office somewhere and help participate in running the network, which immediately makes you ask the question: Why would I stick a bit of mobile? technology that helps somebody else run a network inside of my house and pay for the electricity for that. Aha, glad you asked. Well, it turns out you're rewarded with this token, HNT, the Helium Network token, and you are rewarded for continuing to run the network. And the only way to pay for that network is using the Helium Network. So Lime and Salesforce and others will pay for the use of the network. So the payment system is intrinsic to the technology and users participate in running the network. So you can't really separate the finance element for this. You can't separate loyalty and rewards from it, Kai, as you were saying. Um, But there are also some financial services case studies as well, Maurizio. Um, I want to jump into things like lending. Talk about um, Credits and Goldfinch for me, because this is another one where it gets really into financial services heartland. So interestingly, what these companies are doing is they call real world assets. We're talking about real world use cases. They call this a real world asset. What they do is that they use the global network on blockchain to actually, um, it's almost a fee or, or uh, spread arbitrage. They go to uh, low interest rate countries where they can raise funds and deploy those funds in high interest rate countries at a lower rate. So it's like a win-win-win situation. So if you're in a low interest country and you're uh, lending your money into this DeFi construct, that means you get a better rate for your money than you would on your regular market. On the borrowing side, if you're borrowing money on your the other end of this, what you're going to be doing is 
borrowing at a better rate for you than you're you're practicing in a regular market. And these companies like Goldfinch and, and Credix, what they do is that they bring these two sides together as a two-sided marketplace and they earn a fee on the process. So everybody kind of wins because everything is decentralized. So we're operating on a distributed public network, but you have two different interests that are complementary, but they are separated in geography. And that's what these two companies solve is connecting the lending side with the borrowing side with this two different uh, spread dynamics. And this looks like a debt capital market, which has existed for, for quite some time, but their argument is this is a much more efficient way of doing debt capital markets. So you're in prime real estate here for the core of what banking is and does, and, and no doubt we'll, we'll see some some interesting things start to, to build out there. And there's other ones like TrueFi and Maple Finance. Um, there is uh, the involvement of stablecoins in, in all of this. So it's really interesting to watch uh, this start to evolve. Um, and then Kai, you you briefly mentioned some of the some of the loyalty and rewards stuff. I mean, are we just seeing like people giving Bitcoin as cash back, or are there other more interesting and exotic things we can start doing with that with that space? I think you were alluding to, to some of them when you're talking about Stepin, but but how are you thinking about that whole space? Yeah, I, I am absolutely fascinated by the possibilities of crypto native loyalty programs and and how you can incorporate you know NFTs and. I think one of the things that they unlock is, you know, most companies, you know, have, you know, or a number of companies have a very valuable loyalty program today. Take an airline, for example. You know, airlines have very valuable loyalty programs. People care a lot about their airline status. You know, they get real benefits and, and perks, you know, from it, you know, lounge access. But today, the only company that really knows who those individuals are that have status at the airline and that can provide benefits for them is the airline itself. And the airline is in the business of, of flying planes. Like that's their number one business. They got a lot of things to figure out there. And so what amount of their time and resources, particularly from a product and engineering perspective, are spent purely on loyalty and how to reward and do interesting, you know, creative partnerships with other brands and other merchants. Uh, and it's just, it's very hard to kind of bring a loyalty program to the next level when loyalty is, is a part of your overall business. And, you know, then it's a question of, okay, well, you recognize how valuable that data is. And wait, you're the Oracle. You're the one saying, does that person have status or not? If you can take that and enable a consumer to opt in to say, I want my status on chain. I don't just want my airline status you know, in my airline account. I want everyone to know I have airline status. I'm proud of it. I travel all the time. I want them to know that I've got this airline status. That opens up an infinite amount of collaborations that can happen of third parties that can build applications based upon that loyalty. And so now any brand... I want to know when the Snoop Dogg and Delta collaboration is you coming. You can have like, anything this is, that, this, that, that the airline wouldn't do themselves. And so I think that's what's exciting of like, there's this, it becomes an open environment for building applications that tap into that status. And any value that's created, if you have status on that airline by a third party, feeds back into you wanting to take more flights to that airline so that you have status. And so it's really, it's kind of outsourcing your loyalty program in a controlled consumer opt-in way 
to enable other third parties to build benefits on top of it. There wasn't really a way to do that before tokens and NFTs. And I think we're just scratching the surface of what will be built. Don't hate collaborate. I think that's what we're, we're learning on the loyalty and reward side. Um, and just sort of Maurizio, just to round this section out um, on the coming back to the credit side briefly, um, there was an interesting data point in the IMF Global Financial Stability Report from uh, April 2022. Uh, and they looked at DeFi and they suggested that DeFi has almost, you know, it has a lower cost of uh, just about everything. No, no labor costs, no marginal costs. So it's less Lending in theory can be cheaper. Its capital costs are higher because it's over collateralized. Um, but that may change in time. We are now seeing under collateralized loans. Potentially their compliance costs may go up over time, but it is the cheapest form of lending in, in the market um, from a pure efficiency standpoint. That goes core to what the banks are and, and about. Like if you're in, in an incumbent now, w- what do you do? I think that's a massive invitation to actually incorporate DeFi in your operations. If you're running a lending operation with a thousand people and your competitor is the DeFi protocol lending with, I don't know, 20 people, this has to be in your radar. This has to be something that you're investigating because you have the client base, you have the regulatory compliance, you have the charter. This is a pure efficiency play that if banks incumbents are not exploring, well, Someone is, and someone is going to come for your cake. So do this. The two Achilles heels of the crypto market, whilst it's wildly efficient, it is seen as uh, needing regulatory clarity and certainty, which incumbents can can really help bring. And it just doesn't have enough liquidity, which is what incumbents are absolutely stuffed full of. So would you like to deploy your liquidity and balance sheet in a much more cost and capital efficient way? Question mark. If the answer to that is yes, this area is at least worth exploring. And that could be be very, very exciting. And speaking of exploring, we're going to explore the ad break whilst you guys hear from our sponsors. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility. And Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Welcome back. So I wanted to, to to pick back up in this this conversation around you know lending and and to me I think there's this interesting question of you know, you have this world of crypto lending and crypto credit markets which you know you have these DeFi protocols and crypto collateralized loans and stablecoins but how does that really come more into the real world and it seems like there there are these two pieces there's real identity which can get you to you know uncollateralized or undercollateralized loans. And then there are real assets and real assets, not just a cryptocurrency. 
how can those come into those protocols? So Mauricio, would love your thoughts on, you know, you mentioned Goldfinch and some others. How are you seeing both real identity come into the space and lending or real assets as collateral instead of just crypto assets? I love these two things because I think one of the um, kind of pursuits in crypto is the self-sovereign identity, which is kind of this utopian way of nobody tells me who I am, but everybody knows who I am, which is kind of what I think self-sovereignty is looking at. But in the more mundane realm of financial services, that means that, well, someone has to tell you that you're KYC'd. And we're seeing a lot of activity around who you are on chain. And that kind of speaks to one of the crypto primitives of the wallet, right? Tie yourself to wallet. We just read the paper from Vitalik, Glenn, and Puja on the Soulbound tokens, which are becoming rapidly becoming controversial, but that's one way of understanding what identity is on chain. Once that's settled, I think the overall banking world will be more comfortable in handling crypto in many shapes and forms, because now they can uh, make sure that whoever is being the final beneficiary for whatever the operation is, it's now recorded on chain and they have certainty of that. So that's on the side of identity. On the side of real world assets, it's becoming increasingly common, the discussion of banks, especially uh, B2B banks, commercial and corporate banks, to entertain the tokenization of assets. So if you have, say, receivables from a supply chain operation, what we're seeing now is they're using blockchain to actually package that because it's much easier to do that on chain faster and more transparent than do a whole big operation on securitizing something. Right. So this becomes a way of not only packaging things, but also making those receivables more liquid with an endless secondary market that they can benefit from. Right. So that kind of releases your balance sheet, gives you a lot of relief on Basel and still makes you very liquid in face of the market. So these, I think, are the two biggest things in the kind of real world use cases that will unlock a bunch of stuff for banking as these become more mature. And Simon, would, would love your thoughts on the, the Soulbound uh, tokens. One, like, what do you think about the name? And then is, is that a missing piece around identity that could help drive more real-world use cases? Can I just give that some context first? Um, so uh, Vitalik Buterin, famed creator of Ethereum, wrote a uh, research paper with several colleagues uh, on the idea of Soulbound tokens. And his suggestion was that identity and connections between people are very difficult to, to really have firm verification on. In the uh, crypto identity space, there are currently two main schools of thought. How do we handle identity in crypto? One way is to say, well, with your Web3 wallet, with your MetaMask, your Rainbow, your Gnosis Safe, what we'll do is we'll issue an NFT, um, a non-fungible token. So. Uh, Coinbase or centralized exchange or a bank or anybody who's allowed to KYC would issue an NFT to the wallet. That's one school of thought. The other school of thought is to use decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials. This has a lot of backing for, through the standards organization, um, the uh, W3C, um, the council sort of, the, of elders that sets the rules around the internet, like HTTP and CSS and those sorts of protocols. What Vitalik's saying is those things are great if you want 
certainty about a claim, certainty about a bit of information. But what if you need looser connections? What if um, you know that Maurizio and Kai and Simon are all kind of long-term optimists on the subject of, of crypto? Um, that's why they get excited by podcasts. Maybe when they're talking about the risks of crypto, I should discount that somewhat and listen to the regulators to hear an alternative opinion. So it's kind of, my metaphor for thinking about soulbound tokens is thinking about like reading both newspapers, reading the stuff you agree with and the stuff you disagree with, trying to get a perspective that's the global market and that you can start to uh, navigate these more complex interrelationships between people, entities, and organizations, which if you are going to have decentralization and you are going to have a lot of uncertainty in a market, well, could be very helpful from a design space standpoint to help you understand who am I dealing with? Can I trust dealing with them? What does their reputation look like? So it's this looser connectivity um, than this is in fact um, Kai Sheffield and his social security number is this and his date of birth is this. Like that binary worldview is well modeled in NFTs. It's well modeled in decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials. It's not well modeled um, for the looser asymmetrical, like amorphic, uh, ephemeral world of reality and real life. So so that was how I got my head around soulbound tokens and, and, and identity. So it seems like for me, like use cases like a diploma, like that makes sense, but like you sh probably shouldn't be able to sell the diploma <laughs> that you get. And, and it's just, it's tied to your wallet, your address. But what I still struggle with is one, there's what about, you know, if someone gets hacked or loses their, their keys, like that's kind of a challenge of, you know, you could still sell someone your private key and your address. And so it's not really ever non-transferable. I think there's some like kind of scary black mirror type of things of people tagging, sending a, a, a soulbound NFT to your address saying that you're a bad person and like you can't get rid of it, you know, connected to that address. And so, you know, how do you deal with that? And then the other thing I've struggled with is, doesn't it ultimately come down to just how you query the data? Because you could look at any NFT in a wallet today and determine, did that consumer, did that wallet holder mint that NFT directly from the source or did they purchase that NFT from someone else? And just that binary of like, they got it from the source, you know, that's effectively soul bound that they actually were there or they sold it or they bought it from somebody else. They weren't the original one that got it. And so is this a problem that can be solved more at the application layer around how you read it rather than having to create a brand new token standard that now I've got wallets in my address that I can't get rid of and that it's not clear how that would work? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I, I don't think any of us know. Um, Vitalik is, is a gigabrain alien. Uh, Maurizio, a couple of thoughts on this before we move to what the future holds. I think this is a very interesting proposition. And I think there's already people trying to take a shot at it and, and developing something around those concepts. As Kai said, a lot of big ifs conceptually and operationally that need to be sorted out. But the fact that we're discussing this at this level is very important to develop this concept and to increase the maturity of that portion of the identity that we were talking about, which uh, don't get me wrong, this is all great. But when you talk to the banks, the clients, they, they want some degree of certainty that things are going to work as they are supposed to and not have um, nuances that they can't understand because most of the money decisions are binary. So 
that is that is also important. And, and, and so much of our our society is based on certainty, um, binary outcomes, and you know, settlement finality. It, people want to try and drive to that wherever they can. Before we move on to the future, I think there's just one thing I really want to define, uh, which is the role of uh, Web3 wallets or self-hosted wallets. Because there's so much confusion when you're going to understand the use case, what the wallet's actually doing. But the wallet is like this whole other thing that needs to be understood. They are an internet thing. They're not a finance thing. And I think so often the self-hosted wallet label suggests that it's a fintech thing. It's really, really not. Um, And there was, uh, I think it was Tyler Cooper, AOW on Twitter that first published the picture that said, you know, in web one, you log in with a username and password. In web two, you log in via Google or Apple or Microsoft or um, Meta. In web three, you are the account. Like the app logs into you, like and it's just a changing of the center of gravity. And if Web three takes off, this is this is bigger than like a finance thing. This is your primary way of accessing anything on the internet. It's your backpack. It's your house. It's your key. It's it's all of that. And I do think that now that's part of the reason why you're starting to see uh, Robinhood is launching a self-hosted wallet. I think uh, who else was doing it? GameStop is doing it. Um, Revolut's also going to do it. So the, if you're going to understand the real world use cases, you have to understand that this is not a finance thing. There's always an element of finance cutting through it because that's part of the incentives. But it's all of these un- other industries intersecting with finance and the wallet is the user experience that they start to start to experience that through. It feels like there's almost this trend of, you know, we've talked about like crypto as a service you know, on this show and you know this rush of you know, neobanks and fintechs looking to add you know, crypto features, you know, mostly, you know, crypto rewards or buying and selling, but very much in a custodial model. Mm-hmm. And now it seems like people are shifting to, you know, Web3 wallet as a surface of like, and, and, and one of the questions is, okay, why is that? Like, why wouldn't you just add, you know, buying and selling Bitcoin? I think there is this interesting notion of the number of use cases that, you know, could emerge in the future in these open source developer ecosystems you know, is going to continue to increase exponentially. And if you're limited to a custodial wallet, whether you're an exchange yourself or whether you're a fintech who's building on top of a crypto as a service provider who's you know, doing custody for you, will that provider or will you be able to keep up with integrating every one of those new possible use cases that we can't even imagine today versus the Web3 wallet becoming more of this browser and so instead of trying to create your own AOL portal and you know integrate you know every cool thing in the early days of the internet into your portal, you can just say, let's give customers a browser. Let's give them a browser and let's them be able to surf Web3 and figure out what applications they want to interact with, yet still have it tied to our experience. Now, the challenge is if you're a fintech, if you're regulated, if you're a neobank, do you want your consumers surfing Web3 and finding themselves in the depths of Ponzi schemes and all sorts of unsavory applications that emerge? Or do you want to have some more controlled Web3 app store-like experience? And so I'm really interested to see how that plays out. 
Yeah, the reputational risk, right? It's kind of like it's ve- the parallels with the early days of the internet are, are kind of off the charts here. Uh, there's a really good Bankless podcast with um, Mark Andreessen of Andreessen Horowitz, of course, who was the founder and, and CEO of, of Netscape, and, and the parallels he draws um, are, are, are quite astonishing. The open internet versus the information superhighway, uh, and and we're sort of battling the same thing now. But now we have financial regulation and monetary policy in the middle of all of it and so it's different when it's money and so it's going to be interesting to watch this in the future and Maurizio what does the future hold what are the barriers what are the obstacles how are we going to overcome them yeah I think in terms of the future um, I I am a believer in something we 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 tend to call regulatory integration like it's it's the fact that regulators are not going to be just on the sidelines pointing fingers that you can do that you cannot do that I think we're going to experience a, a moment where the regulators are actually going to jump into or on chain and use the likes of Dune Analytics for their own benefits, for monitoring the market in near real time to draw their own insights, to even prevent or investigate uh, fraud and schemes and become more of a crypto native, Web3 native agents that are not only regulating, but also participating in monitoring the market in a ways that they currently can't, right? Right now, filings for financial reporting take 45 days, kind of, to get to the regulator. Then they have to consolidate all that and make sense of everything that's happening in the market. Well, with blockchains, you don't need to wait that long and you can be part of that. The second thing, which is my hope, is that we'll probably be able to offer from the regulators to the market um, software development kits, the SDKs, that would help banks, fintechs that are regulated to actually pay, play by the rules that they set. And that's going to be on chain as well. So imagine you're a fintech emerging and you want to be a, in a quote unquote here, regulated DeFi. Wouldn't it much better instead of you guessing what you can and cannot do, just get the SDK and jumpstart all of, of your development, maybe by just focusing on the incentives or maybe just on the UX but you're already regulated and that's happening on chain as you develop everything. So I think the opportunity for regulators is immense. And once we see that happening, then I think financial services as a whole, which is kind of my focus, will actually make sense of, okay, now I can really uh, dive into this. The role of networks and standards are going to be really, really key to make all of that happen. I mean, Kai, I know you're a, a student of DHOC, but I, I suspect there's some parallels we can draw from history here. Yeah, I think what's what's fascinating when you go back to like the early days of of you know credit cards was that it was this very chaotic environment, and you had you know every bank you know trying to create you know their own card, trying to figure out you know how to license them, and you had merchants and many different acceptance points. And there's just so much fragmentation and it's, it's very hard, you know, to have good consumer experiences. And so I think what, you know, DHOC really pioneered was, you know, how do you balance competition and cooperation? You know, how do you cooperate on governance and standards and, you know, common acceptance point and, and even just, you know, how the, the, what the card looked like and the dimensions of it. But then how do you ruthlessly compete around, you know, individual issuers? And creating you know differentiated products you know with each other, and I think there are a lot of parallels today where you know you have all of these different you know public blockchains, all of these different you know protocols, and so we've got you know incredible competition. 
I don't think we have, and you have cooperation inside of these ecosystems. I don't think we have a great level of cooperation, you know, across all of these to create some common standards that, that work with all of them. And I think for a lot of these really futuristic use cases, they're going to continue to depend upon, you know, better, you know, on ramps and off ramps. You know, I think about, you know, something like, you know, helium. And if, if you're going to have, you know, brand new networks that can actually provide important infrastructure, at a lower cost than you know, existing companies, that's amazing. But how do you have a seamless conversion you know, from the dollars on the balance sheet of a company into HNT tokens to do micropayments for IoT devices? That's not an easy problem to solve and to be able to do that at scale for any company. And so I think being able to have you know, tokens you know, interoperate you know, with fiat in a secure and convenient compliant way is going to be critical because not every company is going to be able to figure out how to buy HNT, keep it on their balance sheet, and use that you know to to pay their their helium bill. That makes it paying your helium bill. Who who'd have thought that was that was going to be a, a big deal? Um, so I think the role of regulation is going to be really really key, as as you both gents have, have alluded to the role of standards. But we have to see this as an opportunity to upgrade. Uh, like a lot of the regulations that exist exist for really good reasons and if you go back to first principles um why do securities laws exist to deal with information asymmetry to deal with crashes to protect consumers like most people most of the time want those things like they're actually pretty sensible how they've been implemented and whether they're still fit for purpose in today's modern context I would, I would ask some questions about, like, maybe we could upgrade this, maybe we could improve it. And if we have this new uh, sort of parallel financial system emerging on the internet that's internet native, how do we how do we use the best of crypto? How do we use the open discord, the open data, the collaboration, the ability to make decisions together in somewhat uh, of a chaotic way, but bring order out of the chaos, the, the chaotic design um, methodology? Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be interesting exciting. I'm excited to see the beginnings of uh, regulated DAOs. I'm excited to see compliance DAOs. What would that look like? And it, this sounds nuts, and maybe it is, but maybe that's the next mission. Maybe that's the next thing to go build. Maurizio, do you think that like that's just going to sound like bonkers to the regulatory community, or do you think there's actually something there? Interesting we say this, because there is a lot of collaboration in the regulatory realm across the globe, I don't think they see themselves as a DAO, uh, as we see DAO in crypto, but I think the collaboration is there. Maybe what the DAO component would create is the proper set of incentives and rewards for doing something that expands this. And what I like most about, you know, every time we, we talk about first principles, that if, if we draw back to them, we can forget the Web 2 paradigm and bring first principles into the Web 3 paradigm, which is kind of Regulatory DAO, that's that's bringing regulation is important, is a first principle, absolutely. How do we turn that into the Web3 paradigm? Probably through a DAO. So I, I really like that idea. And I would hope that regulators, if you're listening to this, just you know take that into account because that's applying a legacy framework into a new world of primitives might not be the best use of your time. Indeed. Uh, imagine if the industry 
would be rewarded with tokens from the Regdow. Maybe soul-based tokens, because they're they're a weak signal from the Regdow every time that their on-chain data suggested they were doing compliance well or they were following a certain set of standards. And they would accumulate these reputation tokens, which may have a secondary market and may have value, may not. Let's They could be zero-rated. But it's almost like a way of building reputation as an organization for continuing to follow rules. And they might enable you to have more government governance votes in the future standard setting so that you, by acting in a, in a good way, you get more reputation. That just happens to be measured and transparent. And then you get to vote on what sets good properties. And so now what we have is living, malleable uh, regulation uh, incentive feedback loops that could be really, really fun. So, you know, maybe maybe we're just too deep down the uh, the crypto rabbit hole. Maybe we're too much finance nerds. Maybe we believe in networks way, way too much. Uh, but what about the consumer, Kai? Like, uh, the NFT prices have come down. Is Are NFTs dead? What's the next breakthrough thing? Do you think the consumer is going to feel real impact here in the next three, four years? Yeah, on, on the last point, I just want to shout out Chris Bremer, like he is a legend, fantastic paper that he put out a while ago. We covered on the show in the regulatory episode. Um, on the consumer side, I, I think we are just, we're still incredibly early. I think NFTs are one of the first, I was thinking back to like the bear market in 2018 and kind of what was the bear market like in 2018 as like the, the prices were dropping. And, you know, there was a real belief and I, I found myself in, in this position at some point questioning, like, is there a need for a blockchain or for crypto for anything else other than Bitcoin and digital gold? And it was like Bitcoin maximalism you know, as a concept that I think became much more of a mainstream perspective in the crypto space after seeing that really the only use case that Ethereum had in 2017 was ICOs. And it was very clear that, you know, these are most of them are unregistered securities offerings. And you know, Ethereum was good at that, but that, that was about it. And so I think that there was still this search for kind of a soul of crypto and like what were going to be the use cases that we're going to bring consumers in, that we're going to drive developer attention and interest. And then now looking back, you know, as we're in this next bear market, I think it's very clear that there's something here with DeFi. You know, unclear what exactly that looks like in the long run. There are a lot of risks, but like smart contracts can offer financial services and they can do that in, in some interesting ways you can't normally. And it's very clear with NFTs, you know, as a new model for content and media that can be distributed, you know, in different ways that looks like a new form of commerce. And I think both of those use cases have gone far enough to be solidified where developers and entrepreneurs are building. And I don't know what's going to come out of it, but it's a very different environment to where maybe it's just Bitcoin and this whole crypto thing is really just about Bitcoin and digital gold. And I'm excited to see, I think bear markets are the times when you know products get built and some consumers came in when the prices were up and some will stay and you know are having a great time collecting NFTs regardless of what the price is. Uh, some will leave, but over time, the space will continue to build and evolve. And I think we found at least two, and you could add DAOs as a third, potentially, major areas that you know are just greenfield design spaces for people to go and build it. 
Well, that got me excited. I don't know about you guys. Um, and it also wraps up today's discussion. So thank you so much for, for joining me, guys. Where can people find out more about you, Mauricio? Well, I'm on elevenfest.com and Mauricio Magaldi at LinkedIn. Happy to connect with you online. And Kai? On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. You'll find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or Simon Taylor on LinkedIn. And thank you so much for listening. Uh, why don't you, Maurizio, say the tagline right at the end? <laughs> Absolutely. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG.